Earlier this week, Alice Roberts is a professor at the University of Birmingham in England, and she wrote this. I love a carol, but can't shake the feeling that children singing about a religious myth where a young girl is impregnated by a deity is just a bit weird. Merry Christmas. Personally, I appreciated her frankness. There was no sentimentality about it. After all, Christmas is either total nonsense or God the Son really did come into this world and take on flesh. This is either as cosmically important on some random Tuesday in July or it's not important at all. This baby born in that little city this morning, is what we are considering together from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, that's in the New Testament, so you would turn to the book of Luke. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to read from verses 1 to 20. As we come to this text, for some of you, the challenge will be for you to see its glory. Maybe for the first time, maybe afresh. Adolf Schlatter rightly said, the hardest thing to observe is so often right in front of our eyes. For we may think we have understood when we actually only have a superficial acquaintance with reality. Are you superficially acquainted with what's written here? Or have you seen the glory? That's what this text reveals. Glory. God the Son leaving the glories of heaven. Veiling his glory to take on flesh for sinners. Luke 2, 1 to 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly... 
There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. As we look at this text this morning, I want for you to leave being convinced that you should rejoice in Jesus. He is the surprising Savior who brings a very different kingdom because he's a very different king. Rejoice in Jesus, the surprising Savior who is a very different king with a very different kingdom. We're going to walk through this text seeing three surprises, the circumstances of his birth, the announcement of his birth, and then the responses to his birth. The circumstances, the announcement, and the responses. Let's begin by seeing the surprising circumstances of Jesus' birth there in the first seven verses. The author of this text is Luke. He's a careful historian. He wrote this gospel account in order ultimately to give you an orderly account that you might be certain of the things that you've been taught. This is not a little feel-good story to help a world that needs a little inspiration. This account is presented as real history, the real birth of the real Jesus revealing ultimate reality that you must either believe or reject. Now, when we come to this particular text in Luke's gospel, he's already recounted quite a bit of divine activity and human activity. Uh, This took place in the days of Herod, king of Judea, and there's angels who have announced to Zechariah, who was uh, not suspecting it, and very old, and to ultimately his wife, Elizabeth, that they would have the son, John. And then Gabriel, the mighty angel, appears to the unsuspecting Mary, a virgin, to announce that she would give birth to Jesus, to whom the Lord God would give him the throne of David. This is all taking place in the context of the mighty Roman Empire. What we have here is a presentation of different kings and two very different kingdoms. Which king? Which kingdom will last? It's with this background that we come into Luke 2, verse 1, and we read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Luke wasn't confused. He he had written in chapter 3 that when he spoke of the birth of John the Baptist, it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Luke is careful to be precise when he knows what is precise and imprecise when he might not be as sure about the exact facts of when this occurred. 
But he does tell us this particular decree went out from Caesar Augustus. His given name was Octavian. And Octavian came to power in Rome after a period of much strife and conflict. He reigned for about 40 years. And notably, his reign, after all of this conflict, was characterized by peace. This man was no regional ruler. His decree went out into all the world. That is, the entire world under Rome's authority. They were to be registered for the purpose of taxation. We feel his power. He issues a decree. It goes forward. In verse 3, it's obeyed. All went to be registered. Luke, a careful historian, tells us in verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, to be honest, there's some dispute about this census because it's not reported outside of Scripture by non-biblical sources. But if you read Luke, he doesn't do sloppy work. He's very well aware of another census that Quirinius conducted. He writes of that in Acts chapter 5. This is clearly an earlier census, most likely the first of two censuses conducted by Quirinius, very possibly when he was the administrator, not yet the governor, and his administrative office was representative of the governor's work, the governing office. Now, more could be said about this. If you have questions, don't hesitate to ask me after. But if you read Luke, if you read Acts, he's the author of that as well, you'll see how careful and precise he is. That There's no reason to doubt the preciseness of his work. But what's striking here is in the midst of this census, when so many people would have been traveling to their, their own town, Luke narrows in on this one man, Joseph. Verse 4, he's from Nazareth in Galilee. He went up from there to Judea to Bethlehem. He goes up because Bethlehem is about 800 meters in elevation on a mountain. Why did he go? Because Joseph was from David's line. He was to return to King David's city to be counted as as one of very many of Rome's citizens. He goes with Mary, his betrothed. This is more than engagement. To be betrothed was legally binding. They could only break this relationship by divorce. Now, while they're betrothed, they're in a very unique predicament. Mary was with child but not by Joseph. Angel Gabriel made known to her she would be with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke simply reports history. The baby enters the world from a virgin's womb. But why? Theologically, this baby must come into Adam's race in order to save sinners under the power and the dominion of sin in Adam's race, but he could not come from Adam. This baby uniquely 
birthed by Mary, conceived by the power of God. Nowhere does Scripture in anywhere insinuate that God had sex with an angel or anyone else in in Scripture, in in humanity. And it was here, in verse 6, while they were there, that the time came for Mary to give birth. So the time came in the sense that Mary's pregnancy had come to its term. And the time came because the Lord ultimately who appeared to Mary through the angel Gabriel, the Lord brought this time about. The Lord had moved human history to this moment. As we read earlier from Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This registration wasn't the only decree being fulfilled that night. In Bethlehem, the world's true sovereign decree that the ruler of Israel would be born in that town was being fulfilled. For all of the power that Caesar had, he could only ultimately carry out the decree of the Lord. For we read that night, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. If you're like me, when you read this, you you find that Luke is so understated. There's no rhetorical flair. We learn that the, the baby is wrapped in swaddling cloths. Those would have been used to keep the baby warm. His arms and his legs straight. And he's in a manger. Why? Because there's no room for him in the inn. Luke will use this word for inn later on in his own gospel. It can refer to a guest room in a private home. It can indicate a a public shelter. Whatever he's referring to, there's no room there. So Mary gives birth in a room of animals. So many details we'd want to know. But Luke isn't interested in them. What he means for us to see is the surprising circumstances of his birth. In these first seven verses, we meet quite a few people. We move from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the great Roman Empire, down to Quirinius, the governor of Syria, Then to Joseph, who has no title. He's a common man from Nazareth. And then to Mary, betrothed to Joseph, but in a very precarious situation in the world. And then finally, all the way down to a baby in a manger. One king who's in a palace, issues decrees, has authority all over the world. The other king is in a feeding trough, born to very common parents, certainly from the rest of this gospel, we're confident, poor parents. And Luke would have you to believe this is the world's true king. Really? What a different king. What a different kingdom. 
Earlier this week, I read the birth story of King Charles I. King Charles, my apologies. It reads this way. The Prince of Wales was born at Buckingham Palace on the evening of November 14, 1948. Princess Elizabeth was in labor for 30 hours before giving birth by cesarean section, but her husband, Prince Philip, was not present. Instead, he was playing squash with his private secretary in another part of the royal residence. When he got word of the birth, Philip ran up to the delivery room and gave her a bouquet of red roses and carnations. He also declared that Charles resembled a plum pudding. Now, aside from the bit about the plum pudding, I think this is what you would expect of the birth announcement of a king, a royal palace squashed with the private secretary and another part of the royal residence, roses and carnations. But the scriptures make no attempt to hide the embarrassing facts of this verse. Moving down from Caesar to a helpless baby, Nothing here is screaming at us, king, kingdom. Certainly nothing here says that this king's kingdom will outlast Rome's. Especially as time moves on and sentimentality can take over, it can be so easy to sanitize what is shocking. That the one through whom and for whom the world was made would lower himself to this depth. Think how low God the Son descended. Even that night. Think of his status in heaven and behold his lowly state on the earth. We are not served well if we fail to appreciate the full humanity of Jesus. That he knew what it was like to be poor, to be born into a very ordinary home, to live under the weight of the authorities of this world. He knew struggle. Some of you know struggle. Maybe you know or you've known what it is to be uncertain about money. How will you provide for yourself, for your family? Friends, Jesus did not come into the world to make you materially wealthy, but he knew what it is to be poor. Your Savior is not just aware of your struggle. He knows struggle in this fallen world, in the hardest circumstances. And your Savior was faithful. Do not think you cannot go to him about your material needs just as you would your spiritual need. He cares for you body and soul. He could have come into the world differently, but he purposely came in this way because he did not come for the proud. He came for the lowly. To your weakness and to your circumstances, he is no stranger. He is a surprising king born into very surprising circumstances. What else is surprising? Rome wasn't ultimately in control that night. Luke means for us all to see that the great Roman Empire was unwittingly used by God. For all of Caesar's power, he could not thwart 
the power and the purposes of God. This census would have been probably somewhat insignificant in the span of the Roman Empire. It was ruled over by God. Luke wanted the early church to see God reigns, not Rome. And he wants us to be sure of that as we think of the authorities of our own day. Have you been mistreated by the authorities at your workplace or this government? Jesus knew what it was to be mistreated to the point of death by the authorities over him. But Jesus understood, and Luke means for you to understand, that the powers of this world in which we live are not ultimate. More than that, the the governments of this world, even in their wickedness, are ultimately used for God's purposes in Christ. Haven't we known this here? Look at the doors. The Lord has opened. Doors we could not open. And doors have been closed. We've known what it is to be opposed. But even in that, hasn't the good news advanced and advanced? Jesus was born when the time came. And no empire on the earth could stop that. Because his kingdom, not Rome's, not any other empire, is ultimate. On this Christmas morning, be confident that while Caesar has real power and he can move entire populations, he can even lock them down. He cannot thwart the purposes of God. Even and especially when God's purposes and power are surprisingly revealed in such obvious weakness. Surprisingly, in the manger, we are taught again Weakness is the way. Jesus did not come into the world calling you to great works, but faith in the eternal greatness of his own person and in the salvation that he would work to bring. The king whose kingdom will last forever is not advanced by what the world sees as powerful, but weak. I remember so well some Years ago, when Jenny and I lived and worked in Washington, D.C., the funeral of Jeanette Devlin. You've never heard of her. She was a precious older saint, faithful, filled with joy, served our church for, for decades. And the service took place in the middle of the week, middle of the day, so people would take their lunch break to, to be there. And Andrew Nichols stood up. He was a lawyer. And during the eulogies, he said of all the things happening in this city, with all the trappings of power, very few people would be impressed with Jeanette. She was modest. Her life was never on the news or the front page of the the major newspaper. But what the prideful and the powerful world of Washington, D.C. did not discern and could not discern on that normal midday gathering was that this was a woman who was great, truly great. She would shine like a star for all eternity when this world ends. Because the hardest things to observe are often right in front of our eyes. 
True for this baby born to common parents in a manger that night. True for regular people whose lives will bear eternal glory for their faithful witness to this king and his kingdom. Friends, the surprising circumstances of this birth means weakness is the way. That is the path that he chose. God's power, God's gospel goes forward in weakness. Surprising circumstances. And secondly, a surprising announcement. The surprising announcement of Jesus' birth there in verses 8 to 12. What we want here is more details. Was it chaotic? How is Mary? What about Joseph's family? But Luke simply moves on with a scene shift, like a a sudden move in a movie. Suddenly we read in verse 8, we go to these shepherds who are in this same region doing what shepherds do. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. When suddenly the peace that they knew was interrupted, verse 9, they were filled with great fear as an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. What does the angel say to them? Fear not. You must do away with all the all too common notions of angels as cute little fairies with with wings on them that are often depicted in children's plays. These shepherds had a job. They were to protect sheep from wolves and anyone else who would attack them. And these shepherds were very afraid. What's so unique about the United Arab Emirates is the mix that it is between the East and the West. It's not strange for Muslim friends, if you're a Muslim, to hear about angels. You take them for granted. They're part of everyday life. And then for Westerners, perhaps you, to think that because you read about angels here, this account is, is nonsense, a fairy tale from the ancient world. But Luke, the writer, is consistent with the rest of Scripture. He presents the world that we live in as one which has a seen realm, and an unseen realm. These mighty angels exist in the unseen realm to to serve God, and occasionally they present themselves in the seen realm. Here they appear to human beings, and when they do this, generally, they scare human beings to death. Now, if you think that this world is material, that what you see is all there is, you should ask yourself, what gives you that confidence? That's the whole of reality in the world. These angels aren't revealing themselves some insignificant moment. This is a massive moment in the universe. And so the first surprise of the announcement is who made it? Who they made it to? Angels. But not to the king of the earth. Rome isn't even aware of this. Rome's king wasn't asked for permission Rome's king wasn't asked for his counsel about this birth. They make the announcement to shepherds, not to Caesar in his palace, not to Pharisees or Sadducees, not to the great or the powerful, but the common, most likely poor shepherds. 
We don't even know their names. If you were making this up, it's a detail you would conveniently leave out. Then the news of the royal birth comes to these men who would have been overlooked. I wonder if you often find the church unimpressive, something not worth giving a second thought to. I have to confess I regret my own pride. As I grew older and got out into the world, I began to find in my own heart a prideful spirit looking down on those I had known who had so faithfully held the gospel out to me, lived faithfully before the Lord. I wanted them to be impressive to this world. I wanted so badly to believe in Jesus and be impressive to the world. Now, the scriptures don't call us to try to be foolish or unimpressive, but the gospel will mean that we will be unimpressive. We will be foolish according to this world's values. If you would follow Jesus, accept it now, you will not be impressive to this world. Brothers and sisters, we can't outworld the world. But we, like the shepherds, have been entrusted with what the world does not have. The good news of Jesus. This gospel. That night, those shepherds, nameless as they were, were the recipients and the stewards of news that would change the universe. It was a fact of history that would change everything about history. And God chose to disclose, to entrust it to ordinary people. Don't overlook this. It's not just the arrival of the king. It's the significance of his birth that's to be made known. And the shepherds would have to do it. It is surprising good news of great joy for all people. So if a few verses earlier, Luke reports the birth, here, verse 11, the angels make clear the massive significance of it. Unto you in David's city, a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. It is cosmic. It's so personal. Unto you, shepherds, and those like you, born someone this great, And what is the sign for someone who has such weighty significance? The very common cloth he's wrapped in. The manger in which he lays. The Savior, Christ the Lord, in a manger. This word Savior is a a title used in the Old Testament, sometimes about human beings, mostly about God, who saves from peril or danger. Christ is simply the word for Messiah. He's the anointed one who fulfills the Davidic office and the Lord. Already in Luke's gospel has received praise, actively working to advance his purposes. But the angels do not announce this baby will serve the Lord, but that he is the Lord. He will rescue his people from physical and spiritual danger because uniquely he is the Savior, the Messiah the Lord. In the baby, fullness of deity dwells. Friends, the man who came from heaven could only be identified by angels from heaven. His true identity could not be discerned by human reason alone. Don't let familiarity with what is right in front of your eyes 
ever lose its power. In Jesus, God the Son, the Savior, Messiah and Lord was born into lowly circumstances. Revealed by mighty angels to lowly people. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you are not meant to see or value as the world sees or values. More than that, in Christ Jesus, you've been freed from that. Think what it is, what a treasure it is if you treasure the news of this birth. What is so overlooked, dismissed by the world, proclaimed as extraordinary by angels in heaven. Now, whether you glory in the babe in this manger or you meet this with a shrug reveals whether your heart is raised as high as Caesar's or is as low as these shepherds. A surprising announcement leads finally to surprising responses. That's how we'll finish. Surprising responses to Jesus' birth. First, the angels There in verse 13, we move from one angel to suddenly, unexpectedly, a multitude. Praising God. In the birth of the baby, the veil of the seen world is pulled back. And we're given a glimpse of mighty angels in praise. And their praise runs parallel to the proclamation of peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. For all the ignorance, even the apathy about the birth of this baby in the world, there was praise by angels in heaven. This world is not the sum total of reality. The angelic hosts are not confused about this baby and the depths to which he has lowered himself. The angelic host is certainly not confused about the spiritual state of mankind. The peace they announce is not a wishful peace. It's objective peace. Real peace for those with whom God is pleased. The surprise, of course, is that Caesar, and this Caesar in particular, was supposed to guarantee peace. The Pax Romana seemed unbreakable. But the angels announce a peace that no empire could secure, no Caesar could take away for everyone who sees the glory and believes no longer at enmity with God but at peace what Caesar is ignorant about a multitude of angels in heaven are in the know and that knowledge leads them to praise God and the shepherds verse 15 as soon as the the manifestation of the angels has ended They believed the word of the Lord and they made it known and went to Bethlehem. They believed and they went in haste. They believed, they obeyed. And what would be a pattern for the disciples of Jesus, they, in their case, left their flocks, immediately followed Jesus to find the room in which he was born. This required work fueled by faith in the word they had received. And they didn't stop there. Beginning in verse 16, when they found the baby lying in the manger, they declared to them what the Lord had revealed to them concerning the child. They received the word of the Lord. They believed it. They made it known to others. Don't overlook the shepherds. They were on that night the first 
to tell others that this baby was the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. We have good news to tell the world. We know more of the Savior. They knew of his manger. We know of his cross and his resurrection. This is good news. And we have the privilege to make it known. You realize the angels could have declared this news to the entire universe. But they didn't. They entrusted it to shepherds. God has purposed to use ordinary people to make the extraordinary news of Jesus known. I wonder if you need fresh encouragement to carry on in faithfulness this morning. The Lord was glorified in the simple faithfulness of these shepherds. And he's glorified by so many of you who eagerly, faithfully have received the word and speak of the Savior to others. The shepherd's effort that night was not wasted and neither will your effort be wasted. And notice this response you could accidentally overlook. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. There's more people in that room, but they're in the dark. They needed to receive the word that the Lord had given the shepherds to understand who this baby was. They wondered. They marveled. Did they believe? But here's Mary treasuring, pondering these things in her heart. To this point, Mary had already received angelic revelation. She faithfully carried this baby in her womb. She has birthed him into the world. And now as she's sitting there, she has this joy of hearing this account of shepherds that she did not expect. How much Mary had been misunderstood in the world as she understands more and more of what God is doing. Oh, the the joy, the untouchable joy that this world and all of its power could not take away from this godly woman who so faithfully served her Lord. Unknown in the kingdom of Rome, given such a high privilege and stewardship in the kingdom of heaven. She did not fail to see the glory of this baby with whom she was very familiar. She treasured, she pondered, And the shepherds returned, praising God, glorifying God as it had been told them. They believed. They rejoiced in what the angels had told them. They took the Lord who spoke to them in and through the angels at his word. And what about you? That is the question. What will you do with the news of the birth of the Savior, the Christ? He did not stay in the manger. This peace that he comes to bring in the world would come at the cost of his own life. One, by his death on a shameful, embarrassing cross. Why was Jesus born? Why Christmas? It's not because the world just needs a little help. No, God the Son took on flesh to bring salvation for sinners like you and me who have sinned against the God who is, who's made us. One Bible teacher writes, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, 
he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. If we could make our way to God, God the Son would not have stooped so low to come to us. But this he did. And he did the works that we cannot do. The babe in the manger would fulfill all the righteous requirements of God and then lay his life down for sinners who cannot fulfill them. This baby born in a room with animals would go on to die on a cross between two robbers. But friends, his shameful death is not the last word. God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is a fact of history, declaring to the world that salvation has been accomplished. On this Christmas morning, how will you respond to Jesus? Indifference? Fascination? Wonder? Or will you believe? Will you lay down your life, repent, and believe in him. He saves to the uttermost. The tragedy of our world is that we are too familiar with what we were never meant to be familiar with. Death, wars, conflict, sin in our own lives, sin against one another. And we have a superficial acquaintance with what we were meant to see and glory in with our whole being the Son of God who left the glories of heaven to raise sinners who have fallen short of God's glory to glory. On this Christmas morning, as you are confronted with the surprisingly weak and very ordinary circumstances of his birth, do not fail to see and to savor his glory. For it brings joy, joy to the whole world. O earth, receive your King.